And we're going to jump in. I need to take a breather after all those announcements. So um, let's go ahead and let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the word of the Lord. And then we're going to jump in and see what God has to speak to us in our second week of Q&A. Let's come before our God this morning. Father, we thank you for being yours. We thank you that you have taken us broken, lost, sinful, depraved people, and and somehow in your glory and in your goodness and in your power and your love, you have made us sons and daughters of the living God. Thank you for grafting us into your body. Thank you that we can come to church and connect as young adults. Thank you that we can be here and grow in relationship. Thank you that we can learn and sit under your word and hear what you would speak to us. Thank you, God, for all of these blessings that you're doing in our lives, for finishing for the summer, for going into the next couple months and having margin. God, for jobs that we're employed with, for family, for friends, for relationship with you. God, we have so much to be thankful for. And this morning, we rejoice in all that you're doing in, through, and for us. And this morning, as we continue our series, I pray that um, this topic that's at hand, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would give us wisdom. Would you give us revelation? Would you speak to us something new and fresh that we have never considered before? Would you sideswipe us with revelation? Would you open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to see truth and to hear truth? Let your spirit dwell among us this morning. And I pray that everything we hear, we would put into practice. We would make it a part of our lives. And we would glorify you in our lives as we do what your word tells us. We thank you. We love you. And we pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Okay, so we're continuing uh, our series on Q&A and are kicking into uh, week two. And throughout this series, I want to continue to encourage you the slides up there. We have our number at the bottom right. Continue to text in your questions. I want to make sure we get to as many questions as we possibly can. Some of you have even received um, texts from me responding to your questions, which I hope is helpful. And that's my goal throughout this series, um, is that we cover them both on stage from a big picture standpoint and a general standpoint. But then as much as I can, I'm going to try and text you guys responses to your answers in the weeks to come. So if you haven't gotten a response, that may be coming. If you have gotten it, I hope it was somewhat helpful. But all that to say, continue texting in your questions, 719-766-7363. You can text it during service. You can text it after during the week when questions pop in your head. But keep them coming, and uh, we're going to continue to explore these questions that you guys ask throughout this series. Okay, so this morning, it's a doozy. We're going to the deep end. Last week, we talked about predestination and free will. We're going to have that up on podcast in the coming days slash weeks. And um, this morning, we're going to touch on one question that I think informs a lot of different questions. The way in which I want to answer this question, I think, will clarify a lot of other issues and questions that we may be having, okay? Um, So buckle up. Let's throw that question up on the screen. And it is this. Why did God create Lucifer if he knew that he would fall? 
Did God really create evil? Why? Uh, a lot of, this is one of multiple, multiple questions about Lucifer that came up in uh, your texting. And so we're going to give attention to this, and we're going to kind of unpack theologically and biblically why God created Lucifer and try and draw as much as we can um, some answers to this sometimes complex question. But a couple things before we jump into this. First, I think um, sometimes we can put too much emphasis on topics that the Bible doesn't emphasize, Um, And I think this topic of Lucifer is no exception. I think so often we can come to issues that we have questions about and that we wrestle with and that we're somewhat nagged by, and we can put so much emphasis on solving it and on getting answers and on giving our attention to just unpacking this idea in its entirety. But really, if the Bible itself doesn't give much attention to the idea that we're wrestling with, then should we be wrestling with it as much as we are? I think maybe to a certain extent, yes. I think it's good to seek answers. I think it's good to ask questions. But especially when it comes to Lucifer and this topic, we ought not give emphasis where the Bible doesn't give emphasis. Now, at the same time, yes, we seek answers, but we need to be careful to kind of ride that tension. Um, Addressing the answers and seeking those, yet holding loosely the, the obsession to have to answer it where the Bible really doesn't give much emphasis. Um, again, a second thought is um, kind of a big picture thought here. When we come to the text and when we come to Scripture, um, I want to encourage you um, to, to think of it in terms of not so much what you're asking and the questions that you want to have answered. So many times we go to the Bible and, and we have questions. Okay, I need to get my question answered. Uh, free will, predestination, Lucifer, sickness, suffering, all of these things. But take a second and step back and ask yourself, what's the Bible asking? What are themes and ideas and topics that the Bible is seeking to communicate to me? Because anytime we come with our own agenda upon the text, we can fall into the temptation of exerting our own will upon it and making it say something that really it doesn't say and taking passages out of context and forcing answers where really there's not many answers. So what is the text saying? What is the Bible at large speaking to us? That should override um, the questions that we bring to the text. Does that make sense? I hope that's helpful just to kind of... uh, you know, dictate and inform the way that we read scripture. But let's jump into this. I think the most helpful way to address this question and to answer this topic of why God created Lucifer is to go back to the very beginning and address this from a uh, meta-narrative standpoint. I think the only way, really, that we can truly get clarity on this issue is if we go back to the very beginning and take this step by step by step by step by step and see kind of the history of God upon the earth through humanity that Lucifer is very much uh, a, a player of. Not that he was employed by God to be a player in this, but he uh, obviously is somewhat to blame for our sinful nature and deception and all that. So let's look at this. We're going to take this step by step this morning. And I want to liken this morning to a little ride that we call Splash Mountain. Okay, 
So track with me for a second. This morning, it, it's going to be a bit like Splash Mountain, where for those of you who have gone and for those of you who haven't gone, you got briar rabbits and briar bear and briar fox, right? You got this story that, that Splash Mountain is, is framed around. And so you start, and you're going through this ride, and as you're going through it, um, chronologically and linearly, this story is playing out before you, and you're seeing uh, piece after piece after piece, and these things are kind of coming, coming into play. And then it gets to a point where it kind of crescendos, right? The, the, it's kind of the story is climaxing, and you're trying to figure out what all this thing is about. And then the ride, the very reason for the ride is the massive hill at the end, right? And it's this crazy rush, and you realize, wow, the ride is all about this one hill, and it's not about this stupid story that I haven't really been paying attention to, but it's about this hill that I'm screaming my brains out, and my, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend is crying right next to me, and I'm definitely getting dumped after this ride. But I want to liken it to Splash Mountain, where we're going to take this step by step by step. We're going to see this ride, this, this story kind of unfold before us. And at the end, when we come to the conclusion, I hope that we will uh, crescendo and see this meta narrative of God unfold and the very reason why this narrative has taken place. And, and we get the big why um, of Lucifer and a number of other questions as well. So that being said, uh, track with me this morning, okay? We're going to not answer the question for a while. I may give you little breadcrumbs here and there, but this question will get answered, okay? So stay with me. Let's take it step by step. And uh, I think um, it's going to be a fun morning. And I think some of your minds are about to be blown um, with scripture and some of the meta narrative that we're going to offer this morning. Okay, you ready? You ready to jump in? Okay, sweet. All right. So in the beginning, Genesis one one, God created the heavens and the earth. And hey, I'm employing a marker board this morning. Come on, for all you visual learners. So um, I say this every time, and I, I always want to be clear so that there's no confusion. I have the writing of a fourth grader, and I know that, okay? So just, just deal with me. Have grace with me. If you can't read it, ask your buddy. If your buddy can't read it, talk to me after service, and I'll type it out for you. I don't know. Okay, so let's go back to the very beginning. Why did God create Lucifer? Um, and in doing so, did he create evil and why? That's the question. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Okay, in the beginning, God created, yes. But in the beginning, God. The, the very beginning of Scripture presupposes this existence of an omnipotent, a self-sufficient, a self-sustaining God who doesn't need a thing, right? In the beginning, God. And so we must start with, of course... God. In the beginning, God. So God is, uh, th- this truine God, actually, I think we need to further define it, too, because within the Christian uh, framework, we know God as, as Father, as who? Son, and as Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost. We'll do that, all right? For all you Pentecostals. So, in the beginning, God existed and he created the heavens and the earth. And this God, we must define as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Three in one, all of that stuff. We, We can get into some crazy deep theology talking about Trinity. But in the beginning, God existed. He created the heavens and the earth. Now, um, as he created, um, we need to keep in mind that scripture, 
um, somewhat makes it clear that, that Lucifer and the fallen angels, and really the angels as a whole, existed before the creation of the earth. Um, because in the Genesis 3 account with the fall, Satan is already at play, right? The, the, the serpent is there. He's deceiving man and women. So obviously, Satan has already fallen before the foundation and creation of the earth, okay? So, um, so God creates all the angels and all the cosmic beings before he creates the heavens and the earth. And to this, I want to go to Colossians 1.16, the Apostle Paul, uh, in speaking of Christ and his preeminence, this amazing Christological book of uh, Colossians, he writes in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, right? Which means angels, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, Paul's again, is specifically talking about the Son. He's talking about Christ, this eternal Christ that has been existent um, since the very, very beginning. But we can gather, because God um, is one, one God, three persons, the Trinity, then God created all things, the Son. All things were created through him, and all things were created for him, which includes the angels, which cr- includes, guess who? Lucifer, right? So... Um, we got all things created for Christ. All things created for Christ, which means that God created Lucifer. Now, um, he creates Lucifer. Now, track with me for a second. I'm going to keep asking you to track with me because I know it can, we can get lost here. But um, let's think really linearly. God creates um, all things for Christ, which includes the angels, which includes Lucifer. Now, God, in his foreknowledge, the question asks, if by God creating Lucifer, did God create evil? What do you guys think? Yes or no? Yes? Okay, so, so give me a thumbs up if you think, yes, God created evil by creating Lucifer. Give me a thumbs down if you think, no, God did not create evil by creating Lucifer. See a lot of thumbs down. I see a couple thumbs up. Okay. Okay, so the majority of you are right. God did not create evil by creating Lucifer. And that is a crucial theological idea to grasp. Because if God is the creator of evil, then that means he himself uh, is somewhat comprised of evil. So God created Lucifer in goodness, and though his foreknowledge, uh, he very much knew that Lucifer would fall and he would sin, God, um, by himself, by his own hands, did not create evil. He simply created the potential for evil, and that's not the same thing. So God created Lucifer as this pure being, and, and yes, we can then get into how did Lucifer fall, and if heaven's perfect, there was a couple questions of that, and we may come back to that. But God created Lucifer, and by it, he did not create evil, okay? That's a big thing to keep in mind. Lucifer, he did not create evil himself. But after that, um, Lucifer, when he fell, since it was before the foundations of the world and before creation, um, he only had the angels to corrupt, right? Because, okay, he, he could have tried to corrupt God, but God's incorruptible. Scripture makes it clear. God is uh, supremely benevolent, supremely good, no evil, all of that. So, so Satan couldn't have corrupted God, but Satan, the only thing he could corrupt at that point were the angels, which 
uh, Revelation 12.4 points to this idea. Uh, we'll throw it up on the screen. Many scholars point to this passage as a prophetic um, explanation of Satan's fall. How when he fell, he swept a third of the angels from the sky and all that. Let's read it though together. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So again, many scholars, whether this is an explicit reference to Satan or not, I'm just saying many scholars believe that this is a reference to Satan, and that just comes down to your biblical interpretation. But Lucifer... The big idea here is that Lucifer could only corrupt the angels, right? And he swept uh, proverbially a, t- a third of them from the heavens, and they were cast down. And then they existed in this kind of abyss state before the earth and the heavens and everything were created. So Lucifer has fallen, and then we see Genesis 1-1 come into play. God created the heavens and the earth, the sky, the land, the vegetation, the animals, and he gets to his creation, that is man and woman, okay? I'm just saying man generally, which is the masterpiece. Man is the masterpiece, which then makes the universe the habitat for the masterpiece. So God creates man, and of course he needs a place to house man, so then he creates the universe around man for him to live and to dwell and to live out his, his and her identity as sons and daughters of God. So at this point, Lucifer has fallen. Lucifer then has more to corrupt than the angels. Now, wait a minute, I got the masterpiece I'm going after. I got the universe, the habitat that, that can be within my control. And so then we see Genesis 3, uh, Lucifer seeking to overthrow this good, uh, holy nature that has been given to man and women by God. So then, after a series of events, uh, man ends up being corrupted, and we see the corruption of the masterpiece. Satan falls, he, uh, after a while, takes man and women with him, he corrupts them, he causes them to sin. And keep in mind here that all of this happens within the foreknowledge of God. We touched on last week that um, God's predetermination must lie upon the bedrock of his foreknowledge because in order for him to predetermine something, he must know it to be so before it happened, right? That's what omniscience is. God sees uh, the expanse of humanity and, and time and space is nothing to him, and so he is omniscient. He knows what will happen before it happens. So God sees all of this happen. And so the question still is, okay, why? why? Why would God allow man to be corrupted? Why would God allow Lucifer, this evil being, to fall and to, to rebel against him and to corrupt the masterpiece that the creator has crafted? So um, this all happens under the foreknowledge of God. So after man's corruption, then if you journey through the Old Testament, you see a number of things take place. And, and there can be a lot of confusion about the nature of these things. But basically, you have the flood, and you have um, judgment on the earth, and you have Noah. And Noah's kind of this, this next Adam who's going to reproduce and repopulate the earth. But then we see, um, we see God calling this dude Abraham. I'm switching sides here, I'm sorry. But we, we, see, uh, we see Israel, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he raises up Abraham um, to, to bear this kind of people of God who in number, they will outnumber the stars of the universe. Israel, this nation, this people of God that rises up from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we see that uh, God gives them the law, um, which is this grace that he gives them, this, this moral law that they can abide by and they can live by. And it's their essentially rule book to live in the full identity as the people of God. And then with the law, he gives them the promise of the promised land, which is the place in which they can live out their identity as the people of God. Um, and in the promised land then, they settle it. At, the book of Joshua is all about inhabiting the promised land and overthrowing nations that are there, the Canaanites, all of that. So the promised land, but then um, man is still fallen at this point. God has uh, risen up uh, a people for himself. He's given them the law, yes, but man is still falling, uh, fallen by nature. And so there's, there's a crucial issue that still hasn't been addressed. And so then at that point, prophecy begins to come into play. And we see that then um, the Davidic line, this language of like the, the seed of David and, and this, this king who will one day bear some sort of Messiah. Okay, that's vague. What does that mean exactly? Does that mean military? Does that, what is that? Well, then the, the Davidic line kind of starts to unfold in Israel and they start talking about that. Well, then these dudes called the prophets roll around. And that's when we have um, pretty much... Isaiah to Malachi, and you have these minor and major prophets who are speaking to Israel in their specific circumstance, be it exile, uh, be it uh, backsliddenness, running away from God, all that. But they're, they're speaking not just the, the situational place where Israel is, but they're speaking the big picture, that one day, yes, deliverance will come out of captivity where you are right now, but deliverance is going to come in a bigger way in a much larger way, in a grander way. And there's going to be a Messiah who raises up, and he's going to be from Bethlehem, and he's going to be born from a virgin. And there's hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that the prophets prophesy. And so then, after hundreds of years, the Israelites are still waiting and figuring out, okay, the, this Messiah, who is he? And, and, and then the last prophet is John the Baptist, where he's the forerunner and he proclaims the way of the Lord and he's saying, guys, get ready. The Messiah is here and he's about to begin his work upon the earth. Get pumped, get ready. And he calls people like brood of vipers and ugh. He's just, he's a, he's a, he's a cool dude, rugged, big old beard. Gives Sam Epperson a run for his money, you know? But he, uh, he comes along, he's the last prophet declaring this Messiah and finally the Messiah comes and his name is What? Jesus, the focal point of human history, the one whom history has always been about. Jesus comes along, and he is the Messiah. He's the one who is given by God, and he, he lives this amazing life, and the, new, and the Gospels, especially the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, but then John, they're talking about this life of Jesus, the Messiah, who's, who's teaching, and who's healing the sick, and who's raising the dead. I mean, who is this guy? This guy is special. This guy is something else. This guy is more than just a military uh, overthrowing ruler, but there's something about this Jesus that is different. And Jesus then, tragically, as we all know, uh, is betrayed, is crucified, he's buried. But then he raises from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And he then be- begins to proclaim to his disciples this work that he's going to continue to do upon the earth through this thing named the Holy Spirit. What is that? Okay, the prophets kind of talked about that, but, but Jesus then continues to teach his disciples. He goes and he ascends. And then a little something happens called Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes. And where Jesus, in spirit, comes and dwells within his people. And this is going somewhere, okay? Keep tracking with me. Um, Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit begins to dwell with this body of believers. And then after Pentecost, then, this salvation community that we call the church begins to uh, exist. Community. Yeah, okay. Um, this salvation community begins to dwell on earth. And wait a minute, this is, this is God's plan for the earth. These, these people who are broken and yet have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they're able to teach and they're able to perform signs and wonders and they're able to continue the work of Jesus. Wait, what's happening here? So the church then begins to do their thing. They begin to heal the sick. They begin to proclaim this salvation that Jesus came and died for. And here's where it crescendos. In this glorious aftermath of Jesus Christ, and in this birth and emergence of the church, we see these guys named apostles who have seen the risen Lord, uh, Peter and Paul specifically. They come along, and they begin writing of these things that Jesus has said and done, and they begin throwing this curveball of the ages to the church. They begin revealing this revelation to the church that is mind-blowing and that ties the whole thing together and that is the hinge upon God's history of humanity. And to this, I want to go to um, 1 Peter 1.18, verse 20. We're going to jump to Ephesians then, but 1 Peter 1.18, proclaiming this reality. It's the curveball of the ages. It says this, You were ransomed. Track with me because this is where it really starts solidifying here. You were ransomed from the feudal ways which with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now check this out. This is the crazy part. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of all you who through him are believers in God. Peter comes along and says, guys, the the reality here is that this has always been about Jesus. This plan, this thing that God has been doing has always been about Jesus. Jesus wasn't a plan B because man fell in the garden and and something happened. And so God got on his feet and said, okay, well, now I got to send a savior. Okay, great. He wasn't even a plan C because the whole people of Israel didn't work out. But Jesus Christ was always God's foreknown and predestined plan A for his people. Because in his foreknowledge, God knew there'd be corruption, there'd be sin, there'd be death. And all the while, though he was never immediately a part of it because man chose his own way, he had choice. He chose to fall. He chose to sin. But God, in his unfathomable foreknowledge, has always made this history about Jesus Christ, the Messiah and the Savior. So everything in human history then, when we look at this, when we look at Israel, when we look at the law, when we look at the promised land, when we look at the Davidic line, when we look at the prophets, it's all been to prepare the human race for their Savior, Jesus Christ. 
they're never standalone things that God just, okay, well, I guess I need a nation, so I'll just make Israel, and I guess they need some rule books, so I'll give them the law, and yeah, I guess they need a place. It's all been about preparing the human race for their Messiah, for Jesus Christ. But how does this relate to Lucifer? What, what, okay, that still doesn't really answer the question because Lucifer sinned, but, but if he'd never have sinned in the first place, then, then Jesus wouldn't have been necessary. So, so how does this matter? How does this question get resolved? Well, Ephesians 3, 8 through 12 gives us a mind-blowing conclusion to this matter. The Apostle Paul comes along and he blows people's minds when he says this. To me, this grace was given to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, right? Back to the beginning. But check this out. Here it is. He created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To each other? To humanity? No, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that in creating Lucifer, this meta-narrative began. And in, in foreknowing that Lucifer would fall, and foreknowing that Lucifer would corrupt mankind, this, this meta-narrative of salvation history began that would end with the salvation community bringing glory to God and displaying his manifold wisdom to all creation, to the angels, to the principalities, yes, to Lucifer himself and to all creation. And so you see, we as the people of God aren't just these people who are saved and who are existing for our own thing and for our own lives, because God didn't need to create us. As C.S. Lewis puts it, he is original, we are derivative. In him, he is self-sufficient and self-sustaining. We are the dependents, he's the independent. And so God, in creating Lucifer, ushered in this narrative that Ephesians 3.8 says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to all creation, to the rulers, to the principalities, to the powers, to Lucifer himself. And so we are a part of this meta-narrative of bringing God glory. And so in, in, in the same way that uh, an Olympian, let's take Michael Phelps, for example, because the dude's won freaking 28 gold medals, 23, sorry, 28 medals total. As Michael Phelps, you know, kicks the French's butts and, and laps them and wins, the, and wins the gold medal, and he stands up on this pedestal, millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people, whether on television or whether in person, are seeing Michael Phelps and, and they're seeing him stand on this pedestal in victory. Well, in the same way, the church stands on this pedestal for millions upon millions of not just people, but all creation to see. For the rulers, the principalities, Lucifer himself, everyone, all creation to see the manifold wisdom of God. Because who is this God that would weave a narrative so intricately and so mind-blowingly unfathomable to somehow bring glory to himself and, and redeem that which was broken and, and restore the dead to life. Who is this God? This manifold wisdom of God is on display through the church, the people of God. You guys tracking with me? It's powerful. So then, with this mind-blowing reality in mind, um, 
the big idea for us then is that we are the beneficiaries of God's meta-narrative of displaying his manifold wisdom and glory to the angels, principalities, and all creation. You know, the, the arrogant and the hard-hearted would say, we're just pawns in this game that is God and Lucifer. Us humans are just, we're, we're mere mortal. We don't really have much to do with anything. God has created us just so we can play a part in his little game. But I think that's missing the fact that we are the beneficiaries of this. We, we only, the people of God only walk away with good here. And we didn't even need to walk away with good. We're the beneficiaries of salvation life and, and, and receivers of the goodness of this God. And he, though he didn't have to do all this, he chose to, yes, for the meta narrative. but we as the people of God get to know our creator through it. And we get to know this love and this grace that surpasses knowledge. And so we are the beneficiaries of this meta narrative that God has interwoven to bring glory to himself uh, with all creation in mind. We're the beneficiaries. And so God, God didn't just create Lucifer just to create him or just to create man, just to create him. But to bring this full circle, why did God create Lucifer? He created Lucifer to usher in this meta-narrative. He created Lucifer knowing full well that he would sin. Because of the omniscient God he is. And he created him knowing there's going to be rebellion. There's going to be sin and corruption. There's going to be all of these things I'm going to have to set in place after. There's going to be this, this intricately woven story. But it's all going to be, these people can be the reciprocators. But all creation is going to see my goodness. And all creation is going to see my love. And all creation is going to see my manifold w- wisdom for all to see. And though we're not going to read or reference them specifically, there's many questions that tie into this narrative and then tie into this answer, isn't there? Man's free will. Why do we have free will? The meta narrative. Again, some, some more questions about Lucifer. Even questions about suffering, though they may not totally be resolved in this life and in our minds, it's all woven into the meta narrative. And though, yes, obviously, this was the origin of it. It's all part of this meta-narrative of God that he's using everything to bring glory and honor to his name through his manifold wisdom. And so everything God has done from creating Lucifer to creating man to creating creation itself has all been to usher in this narrative that will ultimately end with us, the beneficiaries, in paradise and in God receiving eternal glory. And that's the way it ends. So in this life, we can so often wrestle, and I want to end with this thought. We can so wrestle with these questions that we have, be it suffering, be it sickness, be it natural disasters, which we'll get to either next week or the week after. Um, be it Lucifer, anything, you name it, whatever questions we have, we, it can so often be uh, these haunting things that we give so much attention to and that we're disturbed by and that we're haunted by and we think they're a big deal and in fact they are at times. 
I don't want to belittle the issue of suffering. I don't want to belittle the issue of pain because that is close to home. We need to wrestle with that topic. We need to seek to understand it. We need to seek to understand everything the Bible has to say to us, but so often we can look at these questions and be dominated and be haunted by them and try and just resolute them and get them clarified. But in reality, when we step back and when we look at this meta-narrative of God— and this work that God's been doing upon the earth, we find that though these questions may be tormenting, and though these questions may be haunting, they are swallowed up in this narrative that God is doing. This meta-narrative of bringing glory to himself, and us being the reciprocators and the beneficiaries of it, yes. But all things, even in all the questions we have, will end with us being in paradise with our creator being an unbridled, unlimited, eternal relationship with the one whom we were made for. And through that, the creator himself, who has been so good and so gracious to cause us to be beneficiaries of this plan, will get his due praise and will receive his due glory. And his manifold wisdom is and forever will be on display for all creation to see. You guys with me? Does that make sense? All right, let's pray, and then we'll jump into discussions. Father, we thank you for this mind-blowing narrative that you've led us into. We thank you that though we can't articulate maybe every single nuance to this topic, and though some things evade our understanding, and though some things we may even disagree on, we may debate on, we may hold different sides of the issue, we know, according to your scripture, that the meta-narrative of God is for you to receive all glory and honor and praise, and you have graced us. We see your endless and your limitless love on full display in your act of allowing us to be beneficiaries of this narrative. You could have created us and just thrown us as pawns upon the wayside, but, but somehow in your limitless love, you've chosen to graft us into relationship with you in the process. You haven't overlooked us, but your love and your goodness and your manifold wisdom is on display for us to see, the people of God, for the world to see, the lost and the unsaved, and for all creation, the principalities, the powers, the rulers to see that you are the infinite, supreme, omniscient, wise ruler of the universe. Thank you for grafting us into your story, and as we discuss and, and nuance this vast topic. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would make these concrete, and that you would bless the words of our lips. In Christ's name, amen. And if this is Splash Mountain, splash, right? Um, does that make sense? Give me a thumbs up if you're with me. I hope, I know that's like dense, but um, a lot, a lot, a lot of good stuff in there that you guys can discuss on, right? We're going to throw some questions up on the screen, nuance that dialogue at your tables, and we'll do our benediction here in a few minutes. All right, much love as you discuss. All right, one quick thing, food for thought. Some of you, oh, Jom? Sure, we'll go Jom. Uh, some of you may already know this, but... Um, But basically, the, the important thing, I want to take this and, and work it into a big picture. Um, the important thing with all of this 
is that when we read the Bible, we need to know and to become aware of where it fits into the meta narrative. And in doing so, we don't take things that passages that were primarily for Israel and apply them to ourselves. Um, and we don't take the prophetic that was largely meant for Jesus and apply them to ourselves. That's when you get into some unsound and unorthodox theology and you can get in trouble with that. So be careful. But basically look at it. Um, this is a really rough um, breakdown. But basically... You got Genesis, like the creation and the fall and all that stuff. I mean, I guess Genesis is in, it, in Israel too, but essentially like Exodus to Malachi, Jesus is Matthew through John, Pentecost happens in Acts, salvation community is developed in Acts, and then really explicated more, fur, uh, fur, gosh, more furthermore in Revelation, but not um, completely fulfilled in Revelation. And then, of course, we see up here uh, there are, allusions to this in Revelation, in the prophets, and all that stuff. But I want to encourage you with this, though this is kind of a side idea, look in Scripture and, and plug it in, the specific passage, to where it is in the meta narrative, And I think that will serve you really, really well. Um, hope this was helpful. Um, hope you guys are walking away with something with this. But let's stand, and let's do our benediction, and then you guys can eat cake, if you so desire. Let's thank the Lord for his holy word this morning. Let's pray this together. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light upon our paths, and a strength to our lives. Take us and use us to love and serve all people in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen.